Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and I thank you for joining us. Now, Gab Marcotti is away on business, but alongside me in the studio to help dissect some major issues from the weekend's football, it is Alison Rudd. And down the line, Chief Football Writer at The Times, Henry Winter. Later on, we'll be discussing Liverpool taking the lead in the title race ahead of what is a huge week for them. Plus, were we too quick to write off Cardiff's survival chances? But we start with the major talking point from the weekend, and that is Raheem Sterling. The Manchester City and England star appear to be the victim of racist abuse during City's defeat to Chelsea at Stamford Bridge on Saturday. On Sunday, Sterling took to social media and said that newspapers fuel racism when it comes to young black players. Matthew Sy joins us now. And Matthew, you've written about this for The Times and you spoke about football's tribalism spilling over into hatred. Do you think this is a watershed moment? I think it's a very important moment. Morning, Natalie, Alison, Henry. I mean, I think it's very important to make a distinction between two types of racism. The kinds of racism you sometimes see amongst the minority of football fans is the overt kind of racism that was very common in the United Kingdom and the United States and other parts of the world in the 1970s and 1960s previously, the idea that black people deserve to be called names, uh, that they're somehow uh, subhuman. This was based in a very long pseudo-scientific tradition dating back to an early Swedish taxonomist who categorized Negroid as different to Caucasian and that these two different uh, races have different moral status. And I think this is a big problem that ran from slavery all the through to Jack Crow segregation and in the UK until the um, introduction of the Race Relations Act in the in the 1960s, which was a seminal moment, I think, in this country. But what Henry's written about today in his extremely in a good and important column is a more subconscious racism and structural racism, I think, does exist in the media. And this is where you can't really point to a particular... The N-word isn't used. Nobody would say that anyone has screamed abuse at Raheem Sterling from the pages of any national newspaper. It's much more subtle. It's the kind of racism that sometimes people who are progressive and enlightened are guilty of 
when they categorize and stereotype people of a different color rather than treating them as individuals and come up with pejorative interpretations of what they do. Now, I've written about this contrast very, very many times in, in, my, in my columns for the Times, um, but I think Henry's right. that This is a very important moment, I think, for the media to take a long, hard look at itself. It's very difficult for us as journalists to say that because we work in the media. Um, but I think it is important, and who knows, I think it could lead to, to very serious and important change. Henry, you've also written about this for The Times. Uh, Sterling highlighted contrasting coverage of two young city players, uh, Tosin Adarabayo and Phil Foden buying houses. Uh, Sterling writes both play for the same team. Both have done the right thing, which is buy a new house for their mothers who've put in a lot of time and love into helping them get where they are. But uh, look at how the newspapers get their message across. This is what Sterling said for the young black player and then for the young white player. The headlines refer to Adarabayo buying a £2 million house despite having never started a Premier League match, whereas Phil Foden was described as buying a £2 million house for his mum. Uh, Is the coverage of him in sections of the media, Henry, influenced then by his skin colour, do you think? Definitely. Sadly, this is nothing new. I wrote a book with John Barnes 20-odd years ago, and you know he had... Uh, I mean, there was a piece in one of the papers which really questioned his right to play for England. You know, Jamaican-born, who obviously grew up over here, played for sort of local teams in, in London, and obviously made his name at Watford, and then on to Liverpool. And yet, there was a particularly virulent piece in, in one of the newspapers. I think it was in 93, before the San Marino game, and he walked out with just such abuse. I think he actually scored, which sort of silenced a few people. But so the connection was there, and you think we sort of tried to grow up as a society and as a sport, but I think what's happened recently has shown that um, we've still got a long way to go. Um, the abuse that uh, Raheem Sterling um, endured at the weekend, I mean, it's will be proving exactly what was said. Um, but I think when the criticism of Raheem Sterling, which it, it is slightly sinister at times in, in parts of, of the media, little things, you know, that he, you know, he goes into grave. I, mean, I went to, to see, I think we talked about it before, I went to see him at his, at his house and he was just sort of like, I mean, he's quite a laid back individual. He was saying, why are they interested in me going to Greg to get a pasty, I think it was, why are they interested in me taking easy jets? The one that really got to him was the um, going for breakfast with his fiance uh, the day after he didn't get didn't pick up the award for young players. The, the I think Sane won it. Now he was in place for Sane, sent a message, congratulated him, and yet there was some, something. Someone was trying to sort of stir a little bit of sort of tension there by saying, you know, he, he drowned his sorrows by going off an orange juice for breakfast. It was a sort of bizarre story. And, I know we've had sort of comparisons with what Rooney went through, what Gaza went through, but the depiction of Gaza was, was almost like a sort of lovable rogue, whereas the depiction of, of some young black players, by certain parts of the media, only a few, and I know they're having a little bit of soul-searching at the moment, judging by the, the phone calls I've had, is actually sort of unpleasant. And I think Raheem Sterling has done everyone the sport and the media long-term a huge favour by talking out on it yesterday by saying there is a link between the depiction of young black English footballers and some of the abuse that they, uh, they enjoy in matches. Well, in November, the anti-discrimination charity and PFA-funded partner Kick It Out released figures that showed reports of uh, discriminatory abuse within football went up 11% last season. That's 2017-18. That's the sixth annual rise successively. Of the 520 reported incidents, 53% 
were racism related. That's a 22% increase from the previous season. Alison, how, I mean, how bad is this? It's as simple as that to ask. This is just, when you read these figures, it's just shocking. Well, it's it's deeply worrying that there is a statistical increase. We can show there's an increase in racial hatred and hate crime. And I think one explanation for that is the whole debate around Brexit, because I think that gives a sheen of validity to talking about otherness and us and them. And one of the problems with Brexit is it's creating a climate of uncertainty and when people are worried about the economy and their own jobs and their own lives and rifts in families because people are, are divided on this issue, people close in and they create narratives about people that are the enemy within and it's, you could argue, we're quite a nasty country at the moment in some respects but I would like to ask a question which I think is a difficult one but I'm really interested in... Henry and Matt both answering this. Um, Henry, you say in your piece today in The Times, you go through with a, a breaking news motif. You're sort of telling telling the readers about how Raheem Sterling in particular, the stories have been written with a specific narrative in mind and actually you, you contradict the, the headline with the truth of it. We've also got a photograph in the Times where we circle the middle-aged Chelsea fan having a horrible, screaming, contorted go at Raheem Sterling. Do you think, Henry and Matt, that we should circle the editors or the writers in the papers that have written the headlines and the stories and out them? Because Raheem Sterling has said, effectively, he doesn't really blame the fans. He, he, He thinks they're sort of idiots who just sop up the the propaganda from the papers who've portrayed him in, and other black players in, in a ridiculously negative light. So I, I would like to talk about, and I'll come on to what you asked, Alison, directly, but with just a little bit of background. A few years ago, uh, a couple of economists sent 5,000 CVs to employers. And on half of the CVs, they put archetypal black names like Latoya and Tyrone, and on the other half, they put archetypal white names like John and Susan. Uh, the CVs were otherwise identical. So all of these people had the same credentials. The employers, I don't think, were racist. They didn't think of themselves as racist. They wouldn't use the N-word. They wouldn't use the P-word. I think they would condemn what they saw amongst Chelsea fans. But the people with white-sounding names were 50% more likely to get invited to a job interview. This kind of experiment has happened in the United States, it's happened in the UK, and in other Western nations that like to think of themselves as pretty progressive. So I think this is a, it's often a subconscious thing. I don't think any journalist thinks of themselves as racist. But I think what Henry drew attention to today is the nuances that can be introduced into coverage, often in an entirely subliminal way, that create a climate in which a more extreme form of racism can flourish. But it is quite unusual for us to turn in and to start analysing ourselves as journalists and in the media. So in answer to your question, no, I don't want to see sports editors circled. I don't want to see necessarily um, journalists circled. I want us to take a long, hard look at ourselves and to understand that one can make a structural critique without necessarily wanting to vilify any given individual journalist. But do you not, do you not think, Matthew, that, that the person who decided 
to portray young white footballers big spend as altruistic and lovely and decided to portray a young black player's big spend as slightly odd and selfish and indulgent given he hasn't done very much yet with his young life don't you think it would be the next step for that person to say why why they did that to explain why they did that i wouldn't have a problem with that at all if one could come up with something approaching a systematic analysis of how different patterns exist between different types of people, um, I'd like that. I mean, I know, for example, that there has been the retort that David Beckham was treated sometimes unfairly and pejoratively. Wayne Rooney, I think, has also suffered from that. I would argue that many footballers are treated badly, often because they're from working class backgrounds. Um, But I I think it's quite difficult to necessarily say that in any given contrast between two stories, there is a racist component of an overt sense. But yes, it would be a good idea for editors if it was the same editor on the same day who commissioned the two pieces and was able to articulate why that difference happened. I'd love to see that. But of course, it may have been two different editors from two different papers on two different days. So I'd just be cautious about the singling out of specific people in this case. I think it's a much more subtle, structural critique that we need to focus on. I'd also like to stick up for for some of the sports editors, because when there's been incidents of racism towards English players on the 21, Serbia, um, 2004 at the Bernabeu when England played Spain and Ashley Cole and Emil Heskey were racially abused by Spanish fans. The reaction was that 14 years ago, the reaction across colleagues uh, in adversity commerce, across media organisations on the sports pages was absolutely to call the Spanish to account. Yeah, agreed, Henry. And you, you also, am I right in thinking, Henry, you, you tweeted a statement from an organisation yeah, that represents... Because. Black journalists. I've been struck, and it's quite difficult to say because obviously we're employed within the media at the lack of um, black and ethnic minority journalists in sport. There's also a, an incredible dearth of women who work as journalists in sport. I mean, for what it's worth, I think there's a very uh, serious deficit of uh, black and ethnic minority journalists who write at the front of the newspaper in many top titles. And I think we're losing the diversity of experiences and opinions that are so important in our public sphere. Um, And we have lacked for decades. And I think this is a, a I think this is a major problem in democracy, that we don't have those voices. We don't have these experiences. We don't have these points of view that I think are of such significance for understanding where we're at as a country, where we're at as as a sporting infrastructure. And um, I think the more we can highlight and draw attention to this, the better. We should also stress how how brave a statement it was from Raheem Sterling. And Matthew, let me ask you about the photo of Sterling smiling in in the face of the abuse that he received on Saturday night. We should remind people it was his birthday as well. Uh, How powerful an image is that? Well, funnily enough, I I was watching on on the television with my son, Teddy. He's just coming up to five five years old, and he has become completely obsessed with with football. We watched the match of the day highlights on Sunday mornings. He was talking about the game most of the way through Saturday. We left his school fate early to to get back. Um, And he he said, as we were watching it in real time on on the television, because it was such a close-up of Sterling by the advertising hoardings and the three fans in particular on the front row, 
they were screaming at Sterling. And he asked me about it. And I said, oh, that just happens in football. And he looked very confused. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to pause this. And I rewound it and asked my wife what she thought was being said. And it's worth saying that we don't know for sure. It's very difficult to liberate. I think we can say that they were being abusive, but we can't say for sure that this was racism. Um, I think the presumption of innocence should apply and any uh, decision about guilt should only be taken through the due process. But then I uploaded it onto the, onto the social media, the clip, because I wanted to see what other people thought and at least to alert the authorities. And it was at that point, I think, that I realized, you know, what a ridiculously risible excuse it is to say, oh, you know, football is just one of those sports where people are tribal and they hold abuse at each other and we shouldn't sanitize football. We should sanitize football. We should sanitize it of racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, but also that gamut of abuse around celebrating the Munich air disaster, you know, mocking the victims of Hillsborough. You know, for me, you can be tribal and you can be passionate about your team without descending into that kind of invective. Well, this statement from Sterling came seven days after a banana was thrown in the direction of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in the North London derby. John Barnes this morning has uh, spoken about everything, saying as much as overt racism in football had seemed to have disappeared, I for one never believed that it did. Other uh, former footballers like uh, Robbie Earle and, and Jason Roberts have, have come out and, and say that they feel that they failed the generation of today. Has football been turning a, a blind eye to all of this, Henry? What we've also got is um, social media. I mean, the, the abuse that black players and senior sports presenters, and I'm sure you've had it, on social media is horrific. Just echoing Matthew's point about the, you know, the, the, the general abuse that goes on in, in football. The, the social media, I mean, everyone's got a platform now to make a point, to have a view, and it's, it's important in terms of sharing information and contact with, with, with people and communication generally. But some of the abuse that goes on is extraordinary. And I'm, I'm bored writing this and saying this, but you know, Twitter needs to, if people want to have a go at me, I'm fine, I'm a middle-aged white guy, and you know, <laughs> what they're going to call me, and then I get called a post, whatever. But actually the abuse that, um, I mean, even some, some of the comments on you know, this sort of discussion about what Raheem Sterling, you know, the point that he's been raising, some of the comments you think, my God, you know, these people are really are just, you know, they're recidivists and Neanderthals. How have we got these people still in the 21st century? So I think Twitter and, and Facebook and even people like that do need to, to, to actually have a look and, and react quicker because, I mean, I know black players who've had to go off Twitter in particular because they found it too toxic there and they didn't want their families to, to read it, so they just closed their accounts down. And that's embarrassing for society in the 21st century. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Defeat at Stamford Bridge saw Manchester City lose the leadership of the Premier League to Liverpool after Jurgen Klopp's men ran riot at the Vitality Stadium on Saturday lunchtime. Mo Salah scoring a hat-trick as Liverpool won 4-0. Many, including ourselves, have spoken about how Liverpool are struggling, that they're hanging on in the title race. And yet here we are, top of the table, and uh, the only unbeaten side in the top five divisions, Alison. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 good for football, as they kept saying uh, <laughs> on every outlet over the weekend. 
It's fascinating. I, I, I like the narrative. I think it's really interesting because even though Chelsea played incredibly well for a large chunk, not all of it, a large chunk of the game and City, for all their pressing and tactical acumen, didn't really look like they were going to score. A lot of the subtext to, oh, it's good for football and we have a title race on our hands, is that City is still playing the superior form of football. I don't quite know where we got how we got to this, where... <laughs> Where you're, what you're supposed to get more points for playing superior football? They'll probably win the title on goal difference, and that's what that's the advantage they'll get. Liverpool, I think, uh, deserve a lot of credit for the way. That, the, the, yeah, sure, they're, ch- they're they're churning out results without making anyone gush, but it's really grown up, joined up thinking football. They're doing what they need to do for each opponent. Their clean sheet stats are phenomenal. You can sort of see already how Liverpool are are just... They're not trying to out-oomph City. They're not trying to seduce us. They're just playing to what strengths they have in the moment. There'll be a lot of people thinking, well, this is just a blip and City will, will storm ahead. But I do think there's something about the way that Liverpool are are hanging in there and with a sense that there is much more to come. And it may be, maybe, just maybe, that the beautiful goal that Salah scored that lovely trickery as you say rounding the keeper twice with such calmness this is the moment when we've often said how teams fear City and that almost hands them the title because they're they're not even trying they're just containing maybe this is the moment when teams think oh no not Mo Salah and that gives a a good old psychological edge to to Liverpool but yeah what what a race we have in our hands. Oh, it certainly is exciting. And Henry, as for, for Mo Salah, uh, many have said he, he's not in the same exhilarating form as last season, yet he is now the joint top scorer in the Premier League. So have we been guilty of over-analysing his performances? I think everyone was expecting a little bit of a, a, a fallow sort of plateau period for him after the, the, the injury, the World Cup. You know, yeah, quite a few players have come back for the World Cup and, and have had a dip. But I think everyone who sort of saw him last season just knew that just could see the talent there and what I think we voted in football of the year you could see that that Liverpool team emotionally and tactically was set up to bring out the best out of Mo Salah and you know as Alison rightly points out you know the sort of the, the, the goals at the weekend were fantastic they were always coming because he's, he's a class act he's a dedicated professional what I particularly liked about them as, as well as the balance and that little burst of pace and you know just the composure in the box was a couple of times when he could have gone down, could have got a free kick, could have got a penalty, and actually sort of stayed on his feet. And you know what a what a fantastic you know lesson that is, you know, for uh, actually for some fellow professionals to see as well as uh, kids watching. So you know he's a he's a true sporting champion in in every sense. So uh, no, that's brilliant. As Alison rightly says, you know we do have a title race on our hands here. And, and what I particularly like, and again it reflects very well on on the club and on Jurgen Klopp, is that. Only about an hour ago, that they announced a new contract for Joe Gomez. He's obviously, got the injuries out for a little while, unfortunately, injury. And uh, you know what a great thing that is to actually do to a player. Maybe that it was timed that it was going to happen anyway. But I think you know, psychologically for him to have that love of the coach and the club and the teammates wrapped around him with a new contract is is great. You both mentioned we've got a title race on our hands. Is it still a two-horse race, or can we now include the likes of Tottenham, Chelsea? and Arsenal as well. I know they're a few more points behind, but the way they're playing, the way they're performing, can we add more to the mix, Alison? I'm not... 
Probably not, except that I think those clubs will have a huge bearing on where the title ends up because I was sat watching Chelsea play Fulham and although they won, the general mood was, oh my goodness, if they play like this against Man City, they're going to get absolutely trashed. And they didn't. So for it to continue to be a title race, you need clubs of the calibre of Chelsea and Tottenham and Arsenal to, instead of quivering when they face cities to actually have the self-belief that they can overcome them that's how you get a title race because I I don't think at the moment as it stands those teams face Liverpool think they can't get a result from them last season there was a sense that they did feel that so if if there is a level playing field if you like that the big the bigger clubs with all the talent feel hang on we're not going to let we're not just going to give, give City this one. We feel we can we can work as hard as them, and we've got some flair too. They will have a say in the title race. I'm just not so sure that come the end of the season it will be one of those that have won it. So it is Liverpool who are on top of the table. They're obviously very happy at the moment. The mood though could change very quickly. They host Manchester United at Anfield next Sunday, but before that, it is a make or break clash with Napoli in the Champions League. Liverpool have to win. So the question is, which Liverpool will we see? The all-out attack or perhaps the more reserved, solid unit that we've seen often this season? And let's not forget that Carlo Ancelotti has won the Champions League three times. Napoli beat Liverpool in Naples. So it is set up for a classic, isn't it, under the lights at Anfield, Henry? Oh, absolutely. It's got a touch of the Olympiacos. Go back to the 70s and, and San Etienne. You know, the, the, the cop will be in, in full. It will be an amazing atmosphere. will buzz. People will get to the ground early. And that adrenaline is huge. But, I mean, Napoli, and as you say, Ancelotti, I don't think they'll be particularly daunted by it. I mean, you know, they're used to playing in front of sort of passionate crowds, you know, in their own stadium. So absolutely, they will be up for it. But you can just see Liverpool surfing that wave of adrenaline from the fans and that being just so important for them. They know what the score is. I don't think we'll see particularly reserved football from uh, from Klopp's side, I don't think he, he he knows that. He's far more sophisticated than the heavy metal image portrayed when he first came over. And look, he sorted out the defence as well. That's a fantastic back five, goalkeeper, and then obviously the back four. Uh, Virgil van Dijk's probably in the top two, three centre-halves in the world at the moment in terms of his ability on the pitch, the aerial strength, he's good with the ball at his feet, but also as a leader in the dressing room. Isn't it? In a game where there aren't so many leaders anymore, he's a real, you know, he's a real presence in every sense. So uh, it's going to be absolutely a special night there. Just to let you know exactly the permutations, then Liverpool have to win either one nil or by two clear goals. A two-one win or a three-two win, for example, would see Napoli progress on the head-to-head record, having scored uh, away goals. Um, Alison, briefly on this, can Liverpool do it? Of course they can do it. <laughs> yeah, no, they they will they do it then. Um, I was in Naples visiting Napoli on Sunday and my taxi driver asked me what I thought the score would be and I I think I've jinxed it because I said 2-1. Oh. And he went, hooray! <laughs> and I said, yeah. what do you mean, hooray? And they went, oh, no, 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 no. I meant 3-1, but I didn't, did I? I said 2-1. So anyway, but I'm sure Liverpool won't, uh, and Klopp won't forget the permutations. Um, I think it'll be tight um, from what I can gather from my trip to Napoli. They're not scared. They're not going to play for the draw, which would do them just fine. They feel they can score. They feel they're on a great run of form. 
Um, they've got a manager now. They've moved from Sarri, who, who only played with, only used 14 players all season, to a manager, Ancelotti, who's, who's using the entire squad. And so they'll be, it's, it's harder in that sense for Liverpool to prepare for them. They're rested. They rested, I think there were six players at the weekend. They will be going there feeling fresh, focused, uh, full of self-confidence. Uh, Ancelotti, from what I can gather, is the most laid-back manager. And he's, if he is feeling nervous about what, as Henry described, will be a cauldron of, of atmosphere and with a history of, of pulling off unlikely wins, he's not, he's not letting the players feel it. So I think it might be quite a classy game of football. It might not just be one on passion. I think I think the team that lifts their game best on the night and plays the prettiest football might win it, actually. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Now, Ralph Hassenhuttle's reign at Southampton began in inauspicious fashion, losing his first game in charge away to relegation rivals Cardiff on Saturday. The Bluebirds have won four of their last five home games and are now up to 14th in the table. Now, Alison, there was plenty of talk of Cardiff being doomed before a ball was even kicked, that they might be the worst team in Premier League history as well, but they're making a real fist of this, aren't they? Yeah, and it's not, I think... The current view of Cardiff is, well, they've got a great uh, backing at home and you know anything can happen with home support and you, you can creep over the line in a, in a close match with that. They actually got promotion via lots of negative adjectives. They were, they were, they were considered the, the thugs of the championship and that they bulldozed their way to the Premier League. And that is, I think, why they started the season with most people, me included, thinking they just wouldn't be able to hack it in the Premier League. It, the Premier League style of football would just be too clever for them. They didn't have enough intelligent players to cope. But what surprised me the most was the first time I saw them live this season was at West Ham and there was a large chunk of that game where they were outplaying West Ham they were being really intelligent Junior Hoylet's pace was that they were completely flummoxed by it they were prepared to put lots of men forward I thought I was going to see the odd counter-attack but I saw sustained attacks intelligent attacks brave attacks even though they don't have a, <laughs> they don't have a striker, they 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 were go they were going for it, and I think if you've got that sort of attitude, then you will you will get points at home, and perhaps you shouldn't. And I think part of the negativity around Cardiff was also 
because of their manager, because Neil Warnock is seen to be at 70 somebody who's you should know his place he's somebody who can get you promotion or he can do do okay in a lower division but when it comes to the Premier League elite he's too old school doesn't quite get it doesn't go to clubs with big budgets um, he'll be found out but actually you have to hand it to him the way he's conducted himself as far as I'm aware he doesn't slag off his players in public he's always saying even when they haven't played that well and there have been games where they haven't played well He's really praised the team's attitude to the hilt, their effort, their self-belief, confidence, togetherness. He he stresses that an awful lot. And I think if you're a small club with a small budget, juggling around... I mean, Patterson was a full-back and then Warnock played him as a midfielder and now he's playing him as an emergency striker, which sounds a bit of a joke, but something like that can work and it can only work in a climate of togetherness and camaraderie and belief. You know, you could argue that was the managerial amazing moment of the weekend, not 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 Maurizio Sarri or Jurgen Klopp. It was it was doing that. I mean, he's got nothing to work with, and to forge you in when you're playing against a team with the new manager bounce as well. Gave the new manager a long chat before kickoff. I'd love to know what he said, <laughs> but it was as if he was being yes welcoming, but also saying. I've seen it all, mate. You've got a lot to learn. <laughs> That's true. So do you think he can prove people wrong then, that he can actually keep Cardiff up? Uh, because he's only ever uh, successfully completed one Premier League season and that obviously ended in relegation for Sheffield United. Mm. Yeah, well, th- those sorts of runs are there to be ended, aren't they? And there's a phrase, you can't put a price on experience. And at some point, his experience has to matter. So I think it's possible, definitely. I know that when I saw Cardiff in the Championship last season, they were one of those teams, especially when they got off to such a good start, and you thought, they'll fall away. They'll Mm. fall away. They're not good enough to sustain it. But they did because they were that strong unit that, you know, like a team like Brentford, when we came up against them, they were so physical, but in in the positive way, they were able to stifle us so easily that um, I can see why they actually got promoted in the end. Well, well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think... And I fell into this trap, if it is a trap, as well. Between Cardiff and Fulham, Fulham played very beautiful football. Mm. It was erroneous, but they were called the Man City of the Championship. They weren't really that at all. But they they did play expansively and they erred on the side of creativity and they spent a lot of money in the summer. So there was an assumption that the nice team would do well in the Premier League and the team that didn't spend a lot of money and the team that bruised their way to promotion would be the one that fell apart fell away which was illogical because Cardiff finished above Fulham in the championship they had what it took to avoid the playoffs that means a lot and instead of seeing that as a as a good character trait and it is who wants to be in the 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 lottery of the playoff system you don't you just really don't so he avoided that Warnock avoided that and he came up and kept the same approach and attitude and Fulham made the mistake of just buying in lots of new faces and now they've changed the manager haven't been able to replicate what got them promotion whereas Cardiff have and that again is something that was too readily overlooked It is time now for our weekly predictions game where we pick five matches from the weekend and try and predict the score and uh, these are the results from the games that we picked. So it started off pretty well for Gab on Friday night. 
He does know everything about Syria, and he predicted the exact scoreline of Juventus 1, Inter Milan 0. But because I'm a bit of an expert when it comes to the Football League, I successfully called a result of Colchester 1, Macclesfield 0 in Sol Campbell's first league game in management. Uh, when it came to predicting the Premier League, well, it was a bit of a one-sided affair, I'm afraid. I'll give credit to Gav. He predicted that Manchester City would slip up at Chelsea, but we can't give him any points as he plumped for the draw. And Gab also expected Liverpool and Tottenham to draw ahead of their big Champions League deciders, but I correctly predicted victories for both, meaning, yet again, I win this week, taking my overall lead now to 9-5 this season. I'm just sad that Gab's not here for me to gloat even more. But I look forward to seeing Gab on Thursday when we go again for the next round of predictions. It is time now for Gab's favourite feature, Quick Hits. And Alison, I'm not going to impose the usual time restraints on you that Gab usually does. But here we go. Arsenal make it 21 games unbeaten in all competitions as they leave it late to beat Huddersfield 1-0 at the Emirates. But as our qualified referee, what do you make of the Gunners having not one, not two, but three players booked for simulation? That was Xhaka, Mustafi and Gwendouzi. I think all three were acceptable yellow cards um more importantly the debate about simulation and booking is that if referees take a strict view of it and players are booked and then it is highlighted on tv and in podcasts and in the papers that players will be embarrassed and they will stop doing it i think the fact that three players from the same team did it in the same game proves that's a fallacy. They don't care, do they? I mean, if you, it's hardly a deterrent. Oh, my teammate's just been booked for simulation. Oh, I'll do it. Oh, my previous two teams, uh, I'll do it again. <laughs> In fact, if, if, if this is trend is going to continue and we're going to see multiple bookings for different types of simulation in a game, it's like overkill and players will not be embarrassed. It'll just become part of... Sometimes a player will foul an opponent and the They'll get booked for it. But the general view is, well, he took one for the team. It was an important foul to make. It was necessary for him to get booked. Otherwise, they were going to probably get a goal on the break. And he did the right thing. It was cynical, but it's not really frowned upon to do that. And I think we're in danger of turning simulation from something that was regarded as disgraceful and nasty part of the game, something you didn't want to see, into something that's, well, it's so commonplace that I'm not going to be embarrassed because I've got loads of friends and teammates who've done the same thing. So I think it's slightly worrying. Tottenham are enjoying their best ever start to a Premier League season as Deli Ali scores his 50th goal for Spurs in the 2-0 win at Leicester. He's only 22, Ali. We've been going crazy about Jadon Sancho, who, by the way, scored the winner for Dortmund against Schalke on Saturday. But as England fans, Alison, have we forgotten about Deli? Yeah, there's a, we, what we tend to do is, is if players abroad... We tend to think that there's something special and because we don't see them a lot, they look exotic somehow because they're playing a different league. Ooh, fancy <laughs> that. And therefore, if they're starring in another league, they must be amazing. Whereas, in fact, that doesn't make any sense because the Premier League is the best league in the world. So I think we take for granted young players, talented young players who are in front of us all the time. And I don't think that, that Deli Ali had such an a, a amazing game against Leicester. What I think was noteworthy was that he was given a lot of responsibility by the manager. There was no Ericsson to be creative. There was no Harry Kane to supply the expected goal. So he was trying to, to fill that void, do a grown-up job, knit the team together. And he did that. And 
occasionally he's rested. He has to be at that age, I think. But what's interesting about Deli Ali is when he, whenever he comes back from a rest or an injury or whatever the reason he's not been playing for a bit, he always looks better. So I think uh, the future's bright. Well, it's been a wonderful week for West Ham. Three Premier League wins in seven days as they see off Crystal Palace 3-2. Manuel Pellegrini says the Hammers should be aiming for the top six. Is that realistic? Um, it's not. Well, it's only unrealistic in that I think you could probably make a case for six teams that might get there before them. But <laughs> in terms of where they're at at the moment, they always look capable of conceding. So I don't, you know, that any team that has that feel about them and they were picked apart by Manchester City not so long ago and I, I think while it's acceptable to say well of course we lost to Man City I don't think it's acceptable to to leak quite so many goals against them you've got to prove that you can you can be stoic at the back I don't think they look particularly stoic at the back but going forward they have so much flair I think they'll probably outscore most teams away from the top four or five and I have no objection to the manager saying he's aiming for the top six. That's his job, I think, to boost confidence, optimism, make the fans sing a bit louder. They're a very attractive team to watch and I love Robert Snodgrass. Good to see him doing well then. Great goal as well that he scored. <laughs> Bob Snod. <laughs> Bob Snod is God. Oh, I like it. I have a question for you, Natalie. Oh, Is this the first time I've ever asked you a question? I think so. I like it, though. (laughs) I'm feeling slightly nervous. Um, There was a record crowd at Accrington Stanley. Who were they? On Saturday. But I hear it all went a bit wrong. What happened? Yes, yes. There was a record attendance, as you say, of 5,257 at the Crown Ground as Sunderland headed to Accrington for the first time. But alas, whether we can actually ever officially record this attendance is another matter because with the game poised at one all the referee in the 73rd minute had to abandon the match yes due to a waterlogged pitch the game had been in doubt prior to kickoff due to heavy rain leaving the pitch sodden in places but with the weather turning and the surface playable the referee got the game underway only for the downpour to return and with player safety in mind the game was called off. Now, had the deluge held off for another 20 minutes or so, the game would have been completed, but sadly, wasn't to be. So those goals, the scoreline, the attendance, well, maybe that's all going to be expunged from the record books (laughs) as if it never happened. With the emphasis on sponge. (laughs) Expunged, indeed. That is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Alison Rudd, Matthew Side and Henry Winter. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Thursday to look ahead to Liverpool versus Manchester United. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.